Much of the teaching that we encounter on the spiritual path challenges and at times even contradicts so many of our culturally accepted standards and values and assumptions. In our culture, at times we are encouraged to define success through our capacity to avoid the painful and to attain the pleasant and gratification. Sometimes this is a definition of a successful person. In spiritual teaching, we are taught that happiness will not be discovered through avoidance or attainment, but through the willingness to embrace the painful and the pleasant in our lives equally with an open heart. In our culture, we are very much encouraged, at times frightened into, seeking the benefits of security, of certainty, of control, as a way of protecting ourselves from change, as a way of protecting ourselves from being vulnerable to the unpredictable. In Dharma teaching, a very opposite position is taken. We are encouraged to develop the wisdom that can embrace impermanence and change to seek not for sanctuaries in control or objects or attainments, but to seek for sanctuary in wisdom and in insight. Culturally, we are at times very much encouraged to go out in the world and make our mark, to be someone special, to stand out, to look for distinction, even to work towards providing or creating a very successful and distinguished self. In spiritual teaching, we are encouraged to let go of much of this striving. Instead, much more to discover the wisdom of being and perhaps even the wisdom of being no one. Culturally, at times we are encouraged to adopt or, or even to see wisdom in avoidance. After all, if there is something unpleasant and you can get away from it, why not? To turn away from the unpleasant, which actually covers a pretty large range of experiences in our lives. To distance ourselves from what we might call suffering, loss, change, death, sickness, aging, a number of things. Spiritually, in the spiritual path, we are perhaps taught that this avoidance equals alienation. We are encouraged not certainly to cultivate pain, but to, to turn towards the unpleasant and the challenging in our lives so that we are not a victim of those experiences. But to see that by opening our hearts to life's essential truths, sorrow and loss and death, that within these experiences we find some of our most profound teachers. Culturally, at times, we are taught that happiness is something certainly that can be gained and achieved through having and through becoming, through having things, through having experiences, through having objects, through having credentials, through becoming someone that, who is admired and applauded. Spiritually, the emphasis is a little different. Happiness is sometimes seen as being that wisdom, that inner wisdom that grasps hold of no thing, that clings to nothing, that lies within the richness of our own being. The list of these contradictions and these apparent polarizations actually goes on and on and on. 
And I think there is no doubt that when we enter into a path of inquiry and a path of insight, we very much confront the power of our own conditioning. We are asked to examine what we assume about everything, and most especially asked to examine what we assume about ourselves. We are asked to examine our values, our standards, our images, our way of being and who we are in the light of awareness, a gentle and clear inquiry. To ask ourselves, where do we actually find happiness? Where do we actually find peace in our lives? What is it that leads to sorrow? and to alienation. And a path of inquiry is actually an invitation to learn from our stories, to learn from our own lives, and to learn from our experience of this moment, what it is on a moment-to-moment level that leads to openness, to compassion, to liberation, and what it is that leads to conflict, to narrowness, and to limitation. It is never enough, you know, just to listen to somebody else's words and somebody else's teaching and say, oh yes, that makes perfect sense. It's never enough to accept the words or the advice of another, no matter how wise or how loving they are. For us to travel this path, For us to really deepen in wisdom and compassion in our lives, we do need to see for ourselves very directly and through our own experience what causes sorrow and what ends it. In the talk this evening, I'd I'd like to explore a little bit the most essential, or yes, the most essential of the Buddha's teaching essentially the Four Noble Truths, to explore the way that we understand that essential teaching and the way in which that teaching challenges so much of our cultural conditioning. According to the legend, the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree after all of these experiences that Anna spoke about the other night, his many forays into the spiritual path, his many trials and errors. After his reflection on what peace meant for him, he sat under the Bodhi tree actually with a certain determination. And he determined, as the story goes, that he was going to sit there until he awakened. Luckily, Luckily, it didn't take too long. (laughs) And on the eve of his awakening, his understanding of freedom, something very distinctive did happen. It wasn't just, you know, a little shift. He figured things out. There was something very profound, something very mystical that occurred, some very deep level of understanding. And the way that he articulated that understanding or that revelation was in the form of the Four Noble Truths. Through this kind of explanation, he articulated his vision of freedom and a path. And this path is what we call the Dharma. And the Buddha also said that one who sees the Dharma sees the Buddha. And one who sees the Buddha sees the Dharma. It is another way of saying that to awaken to life's most essential truth is to see the Buddha within ourselves and within all things. That to understand what it means to be free and what it means to be awake is to live within the mind of the Buddha. In the talk this evening, I would also like to explore a little bit what our culture promotes as its own version of the Four Noble Truths. 
which I think also does exist very much within our world. Now, Gautama the Buddha, after his enlightenment, said that the first noble truth, the first truth of life, is to understand that there is inherently in life unsatisfactoriness. In other words, we might paraphrase that as saying, there are things you can't fix. There is inherent in life unsatisfactoriness, dukkha. Now, sometimes dukkha is translated to mean suffering, but this is actually a very inaccurate translation. It means unsatisfactoriness. And I think especially when Westerners hear the first noble truth translated that saying life is suffering, you know, all these alarm bells go off. And they say, oh, no, no, hold on. You know, I'm not suffering. You know, look, look how happy I am. You know, look at all these wonderful things in my life. Look at the beauty of the sunset. Listen to the wonder of a child laughing and the intimacy of connection with another person. To say that there is unsatisfactoriness in life is not life-denying. In fact, one could say it is life-enhancing. The statement about unsatisfactoriness is a description of the nature of conditioning. All things which are conditioned, all things which are constructed, they are subject to the rules of conditioning, the laws of conditioning. They are subject to impermanence. No matter how joyful we find something, no matter how much we delight in something, all things which are conditioned will pass. They will come to an end. All things that are conditioned are subject to birth and to death, to arising and to passing, to beginnings and endings. No matter how much we struggle to preserve, maintain, or control. Unsatisfactoriness also has a deeper meaning than just observing this endless web of conditioning and construction. To be alienated, to be exiled in any way from that which is most true within ourselves, to be exiled from our true nature, our original face, is to live in the realm of unsatisfactoriness. To live in a way in which our sense of being, our sense of who we are, is defined by or invested in objects, in people, in belief systems, or in identities, inevitably means that there will be pain in our lives. There will be discontent in our lives. To live in a way in which we don't understand what it means to be free is to live in a kind of eternal homelessness where the result, the, the manifestation of that feeling of homelessness is this reaching, this always seeking to fill up a vacuum, that sense of there being something missing, something incomplete, or something absent in ourselves. Our understanding of unsatisfactoriness deepens as both our hearts and our eyes open to what is. We see more and more clearly the obvious manifestations of unsatisfactoriness in the forms of loss and failure and disappointment and disillusionment. And we see more and more how unsatisfactory that more subtle pain is of living in a homeless way. Now, in, in the West, we also perhaps have our own way of seeing this first noble truth or our own version of this first noble truth about unsatisfactoriness. But it looks a little bit different than the Buddhas looked. 
We live in a world which I think subscribes to a kind of mythology, a kind of fairy tale or fantasy, which really has little room and little tolerance for the acknowledgement of pain or an unsatisfactoriness. We subscribe or find ourselves subscribing to that mythology because to question it would be to question, of course, so many of our own values and assumptions and ambitions and goals. You know, ambitiousness looks a little funny in the light of impermanence. You know, striving to be someone special looks a little weird in the light of no self. You know, so to question much of our mythology would mean actually questioning our lives. What are we doing here on this earth? What are we doing in our lives? What do we value? It is a mythology in which basically there is no room for pain. When we encounter pain or unsatisfactoriness often in our lives, our most immediate response is to say there's something wrong not just that there is unsatisfactoriness, but that there is something wrong. And when something is wrong, you know, maybe we have different responses. We try to deny it. We say they shouldn't be there. We regret it. We pretend it doesn't exist, or we numb ourselves to it. Any kind of mythology or culture or life which revolves around the pursuit of self and the pursuit of pleasure, which is misnamed happiness, of course, is very reluctant to acknowledge pain and unsatisfactoriness. Now, the second noble truth that Gautama spoke about, he said there is a cause of suffering. There is a cause of suffering and that the cause of suffering is craving. Now, maybe to you it seems very obvious that there is a cause of suffering. I know that in my first encounter with the Dharma, you know, this is one of the first things I, I was taught or heard, that there's a cause to suffering. I thought this was the most remarkable revelation I had ever heard, that there is a cause to suffering. I had always assumed to some extent, well, you know, I mean, maybe there was a cause sometimes that I'd done something wrong, but mostly suffering, in the way I had seen it, was a kind of random experience. That it happened to you if you were unlucky, or that it happened to you if you hadn't tried hard enough to avoid it. We may say, you know, our minds go through its gears and it says, well, it's too simplistic to say that craving is the cause of suffering. You know, boy, you know, when we think of the causes of suffering, we can come up with a lot of things, you know. We say, all right, when there is suffering in my life, you know, I know what it's all about. It's my boss, it's my children, it's my grandmother, it's my body, it's my mind, it's my personality. All of these things are the cause of suffering. It's the weather, you know, it's everything. The list is often endless. Now, it might be true to say that there is disharmony in our lives, and some of that disharmony are factors which create pain or suffering in our own experience. But it is important to look to this moment, to look to the basics, the bare essentials of this moment, and to look at the role that craving and that clinging actually plays in our experience. What happens when you want what you don't have? What happens when you have what you don't want? What happens in our experience when we want things to be different? than they are when we reject what is or deny it. 
What happens in the whole realm of non-acceptance? When something is not in accord with our expectations, our images, our wants, our sense of need, when something is different than what we want. What happens in our experience, in our hearts, our feelings, when we want one thing to end or something else to begin? When we want to recover what we have lost or to gain what we never had? What happens in our hearts and in our lives when we want something better than what we have? There's a lot of wanting that goes on. A lot of wanting that we see on a moment-to-moment level. It's not a very pleasant experience, wanting. It's tension. You know, we're not talking about creative exploration here. You know, we're not talking about aspiration. We're not talking about vision. We're talking about this kind of, uh, this little, the child within it says, I have to have. I want, I must have. Now, if you think about, you know, the wanting that might go on in your experience and the pain that comes with it in a single day or in a single hour, there's a few billion people in this world. Let's multiply it. What do we have? We have greed. We have domination. We have alienation. We have rejection. We have a lot of pain. Actually, we have a sea of sorrow. Craving leads us to war with ourselves, to battle with the present moment, and to struggle with others. Craving is the face of disharmony, and its offspring are countless. It leads us to be always reaching, but never satisfied, always hungry, but never full, always seeking, but never arriving. And no matter how much we alter or modify or gain or redecorate our personal worlds, we meet again and again the never-satisfied mind. I think we've probably all met it to some extent here and experienced its implications. There are subtle and acute levels of discontent that accompanies the wanting, the craving mind. In the Tibetan tradition, they they have this kind of realm they call the realm of the hungry ghosts. And the hungry ghosts actually live, you know, this is mythology supposedly, that the hungry ghosts live within this realm, you know, where they are exposed to lots of enticing things, you know. There's lots to eat, lots to do, lots to have, lots of things to get into. And the hungry ghosts are starving. They're starving. And they're exposed to all these things. They have one small problem. They have this incredibly skinny little neck. So that no matter how much they try and satisfy that wanting, it can never be satisfied. It can never be full. In some ways, we sometimes find we have these hungry eyes and these hungry ears and these hungry bodies and these hungry minds. And why? Why is that hunger there? You know, that's the bottom bottom line question, you know. Not a question of why can't I get what I want, but why do I believe that I have to get what I want? Because on some level, we believe it. We believe we need this. We need to get, we need to have, we need to reach, we need to impress, we need to attain, we need to perform, we need to appear. Why? This is the nature of homelessness. This is actually the nature of homelessness. To be always reaching outside of ourselves, we believe we do not hold within our being the richness, the completeness, the wakefulness, the fullness of freedom. And so we reach. We reach for it outside of ourselves to what has not been yet attained, 
to what is yet to be experienced. The only thing that we never truly want is that which we have and find a fullness of happiness and wisdom within. And actually, this is what enlightenment is all about. You know, I mean, you know, you might have these these images of enlightenment. Awakening is about realizing, awakening to the truth of who we are, to the essence of freedom that lies within us, awakening to our own hearts, which hold a profound capacity for compassion, awakening to the essential nature of our minds, which hold a profound capacity for a deep and abiding peace, awakening to joy. Unawakened to the truth of who we are, we are endlessly seeking for freedom and happiness in places that cannot be found. And wanting and craving and clinging is the fuel that leads to pain. Now, in the West, we, in our culture, I think, we have a little bit of a different view of the cause of suffering. It's different because of our conditioning. We are inclined in our culture, when we think of pain or think of suffering, almost automatically to think in terms of blame. If there is pain or unsatisfactoriness or suffering, invariably one of the first thoughts that arise is, whose fault is it? Whose fault is it? Maybe it's my fault, the fault of who I am. Often we might think it's somebody else's fault. We might think, all right, if there's pain, what have I done wrong or what is wrong with me? Or possibly we think in terms of, well, what has somebody else done wrong? What is wrong with them that they have done this wrong to me? (laughs) This is an easier and more tempting path than to think what I have done wrong. Now again, bring this into the, this sense of fault, this sense of blame, into the light of our experience here. Now, occasionally, you know, once in a, you know, once in a blue moon, it happens in meditation retreats that you have a sitting or a walking or even a whole day where everything seems to go amiss. You know, we are brought face to face with discontent with restlessness, with the reacting mind. At times we just feel sort of mugged by our thoughts and our bodies are rebelling and our mind states assault us. Now, admittedly, this only happens occasionally. (laughs) But here again, we are brought face to face with unsatisfactoriness. Now, what do we do? How do we respond? Possibly we respond with a great deal of grace and wisdom, knowing all of this will pass, all of this will change. Anyway, it's not me, so why should I be concerned with it? Sometimes we have this wonderful grace and wisdom. Will we bring an open heart and a patience and a compassion and understanding to all of these things that we're experiencing? Occasionally, too, we are tempted into the path of blame. It's my fault. It's my fault this is happening. You know, we're convinced it's my fault. If I had a different body, you know, like the one that, like that person has over there, you know, that person who sits like a Buddha, you know, If I had a different mind, you know, surely if I had just could do a little bit of a mind transplant here, all would be well. If I had a different personality, you know, surely this might be the problem. You know, my personality is too sticky, it's too hung up, you know, it's it's too lost. If I had a different personality, then I would be happy. Sometimes we just, you know, conclude that everything's wrong with ourselves, you know, and then think, well, 
you know, I'm not the right kind of person for this business. You know, you need a kind of background of saintliness, you know, or, you know, a happy childhood, or, you know, a good relationship, and then you're the right kind of person to do this stuff. You know, we think maybe, you know, our history is just too much. Other times, you know, we're not so interested in this path of self-blame and self-judgment, and we have lots of alternatives available to us, fortunately. We see the problem as being outside of ourselves. It's somebody else's fault here. And usually this arises in the form of our uh, neighbor on the next cushion. <laughs> Now, if I didn't have to sit here beside this person who is always shuffling, they are a primary obstacle to freedom. <laughs> we conclude, you know, we've taught, heard about the demons of the hindrances, you know, and the samskaras. This person is the most major obstacle to my freedom. I'm having to spend my whole sitting having to pay attention to their restlessness. I have no time to be at peace. <laughs> you know, every movement I'm there, I have to pay attention to it. How do you expect me to deepen in meditation, really? You know, when this other person's always sniffing, you know, you always get someone, you know, you always get someone that's doing something wrong, you know, and it's really easy to figure out how they're interfering with your wisdom. You know, they're sniffing, or it's a mosquito, you know, there's one mosquito that has this mission in life to annoy me, you know. It's born, born with a mission to get me. <laughs> Or, you know, the, the list goes on and on, you know, it's the teachers, you know, we need a man up there, or, you know, or if I was in a different place, I need to be on self-retreat, that's it, you know, not with this big group of people distracting me. You know, we can be, get very creative in our search for blame. You know, it's the stars. Venus is rising instead of falling, you know, <laughs> and that's why my mind is so agitated. I think we need to see this, you know, with a sense of humor, definitely, you know, definitely with a sense of humor before we kind of go to suffocate our neighbor or something, you know. <laughs> we need to see, we are brought up in a culture of blame. We are brought up in a culture of blame. That's the way our culture works, you know, figure out whose fault it is. You know, I mean, you know, these lawsuits, you know, and suing and you know, get what you can before this other person gets it before you, you know. We are brought up in this culture of blame. And if you magnify this kind of blame or judgment that we can go through in a single day by the number of people in this room, boy, this is a heavy place to be. You know, this is intense stuff, you know, sitting there figuring out whose fault it is. We have then a lot of judgment a lot of prejudice, a lot of conflict. And does it make any difference? I mean, does blame make any difference to anything at all? It makes us feel better. Sometimes it does make us feel better if we can figure out what seems to be causing our suffering. That's different than asking ourselves, does it make any real difference? Personally, I've never encountered any situation where blame has ended suffering. To see, I think we need to see, that if we truly desire, if we are truly committed to being awake, if we are truly committed to learning, if we are truly committed to the end of suffering, nothing in the world prevents it. Nothing in the world can imprison us. Now, the third noble truth is pretty good news. The end, there is an end. There's an end. There is an end to unsatisfactoriness. There is the unconditioned. 
There is an end to suffering. There is liberation. There is enlightenment. In the profound insight into the nature of reality, the nature of the unconditioned, the nature of truth, which lies in and through the world of appearance and illusion, we find liberation. We find awakening, the end of suffering. It is a revelation which reveals the emptiness of self and division and, and separation. It's an insight, a revelation which shatters our whole notion of suffering and all its causes. Sometimes described as the highest happiness. Sometimes described as supreme bliss. Its awakening is much more profound than our conventional ideas of happiness. It is awakening known and manifested in non-clinging, in non-becoming, a radiance, a radiance of understanding which shines through all of our experience. Sometimes in Buddhist terminology it's called blowing out the fire. This tends to be a more Theravadan terminology which tends to be a little bit more flat. The Mahayana is really getting into it. Your true nature is not lost in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It was never born and can never die. It shines through the whole universe, filling emptiness, one with emptiness. It is without time or space and has no passions, actions, ignorance, or knowledge. In it there are no things, no people, and no Buddhas. It contains not the smallest hairbreadth of anything that exists objectively, depends on nothing, and is attached to nothing. It is all-pervading, radiant beauty, absolute reality, uncreated. That's who you are. In the West, <clears throat> We have uh, our own version of the Third Noble Truth about the end of suffering, which again looks perhaps a little different. And we tend to say, well, if there is suffering or if there is pain, once we've figured out the causes and whose fault it is and who's to blame, then the end of suffering is fix it. Fix it. This view is highlighted in our lives and in our world in and through the pursuit of perfection. We can see how much time, how much energy is dedicated to seeking the perfect body. How many prescriptions and workshops and formulas exist that tell us how to find the perfect experience and the perfect relationship to be the perfect person, to fix what is wrong with us, to solve it, to define it, and to resolve it. The bottom line in this pursuit is, if you are good enough, if you change and alter and modify enough, if you try hard enough, if you strive enough, if you refine enough, if you get rid of your imperfections successfully, then you are going to find the end of pain and the end of unhappiness and the end of suffering. Perfection, then, and personal worthiness are seen to be the prerequisites to the end of pain. This is not a negation of carefully exploring our sense of who we are, of consciously letting go of the unskillful and the unwholesome, of consciously nurturing the wise and the compassionate within ourselves. All of us are challenged to do this in every moment of our lives. It is something different when it is motivated by this desire to be good enough and to strive for perfection. In this busyness of the search for perfection, wisdom is hardly mentioned 
as being an element in the end of pain or the end of suffering. In, in fact, we hardly really have any time to be wise because we are so busy trying to make ourselves and our world perfect and we all know how much it seems there is to be fixed in ourselves. I mean, you've all experienced this on retreats, you know. You know, great, I've fixed my anger and now I'm going to work on my greed and then I'm going to fix my <laughs> defensiveness. You know, and after that, you know, if I have enough time, lifetimes left, you know, I'm going to fix my personality. And this whole endless, endless agenda that comes into this view of perfection. I think also we all know in our experience the price that we pay for following this pursuit of perfection. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of self-denial. Sometimes there's a lot of suppression. We live with the voice of the inner critic, always evaluating and alienating and defining. And we think this is necessary to be awake, to be free. You know, and sometimes we feel a little bit suspicious of the Four Noble Truths because we say, well, it, you know, it's great news that there's enlightenment and it's great news that, you know, in my essence I am this radiant, wonderful gem, but I can't see it, you know. And how do I get there? You know, how do I get to this, this point of awakening? You know, is there some magical ingredient? And I think sometimes in in feeling frustrated with the seeming absence of that magical ingredient, we fall back into our path of fixing and doing. Spiritual handy persons, <laughs> equipped with our toolboxes, you know, with a goal in mind. We wonder what is it that's going to enable us to make the transition from pain to happiness, from confusion to clarity, from ignorance to enlightenment. Now, there is a certain element of mystery here, I would say. There is a quality of grace that is really part of this, this kind of mysterious transition. There is a quality of grace of being so still inwardly, not absence of movement, but so present, so open, so balanced, so still, so receptive that we are so touched by, by the revelation and the wonder and the learning of each moment. There is a quality of grace in that stillness. And many times insight does come to us almost as a kind of benediction almost as a kind of blessing. We can't say, oh, yes, I did this, and then I got that. But we know that there is this kind of element of grace and stillness. But that's not all. That's not all. It is not only grace that is in this, somehow involved in this mysterious transition. There are certainly the qualities of insight, the qualities of knowing how to live in a sacred way, knowing how to live in a way in which we are committed to being free. I mean, no one else can offer that to us. All of us have to find that in our hearts to know what we are deeply committed to in our lives. The fourth noble truth is that there is a path to an end of suffering. And I would not like to present this in a way in which it seems a kind of linear progression that if you do this, it's a kind of ladder that you're climbing from ignorance to enlightenment. But there is a path to the end of suffering in this moment. And when suffering, when we are no longer participating in the creation of suffering through ignorance or through delusion, then there is grace, then there is stillness. So there is this curious combination of both consciousness in our lives, consciousness in our being, and consciousness in our commitment, and also this quality of grace in which we are touched by understanding. The Buddha spoke about the path to the end of suffering in terms of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is far more profound than it first appears. 
because it is a path actually which touches every area of our lives and essentially it's an invitation to be awake in every single moment of our lives because there is no exemptions to it. There's nothing that is excluded. It is a path which actually calls for us to live in a spirit of freedom, to live in the most sacred, the most noble, the most wise way that is possible for us as human beings. It is a path we culture, uh, cultivate and nourish and live. And that third bit is particularly important. It's a path of, of wise speech, speaking our words from a place of awareness and wakefulness, free of harm and heedlessness, in a way that respects and honors the essence of another person. The path of wise action, so that we touch the world in a way in which we're rooted in compassion and courage and sensitivity, ending harm respecting that which is most true within all of life, the path of wise mindfulness, to be awake, to shed numbness, to put aside habit, to be here, the path of wise livelihood, to live in our way, in a way in which we do not contribute to a lack of well-being in anyone, in anywhere, through our actions, the path of wise effort, you know, it does take some commitment on our part to being awake. The path of wise concentration, being present in this moment, paying attention. The path of wise view, no longer seeing the false to be true, seeking to understand what is actually true, seeking to see the falseness of separation and division. The path of wise thought, knowing that even in our smallest thoughts we have the power to contribute to either creation or destruction in our world. It is a path of peace. In the teaching of the Buddha, this path is not a path of passivity, you know, of hanging out, waiting, postponement. It's a path that invites us and inspires us to be awake. In our culture, <laughs> we also tend to have our own view of the path to the end of pain. It's also not passive. Sometimes one link in that path that we see promoted in our culture as being the path to the end of pain is, first of all, turn to an expert, you know. If you can't figure it out yourself, look to somebody else for the answers, the solutions, the prescriptions. Another link might be willpower. Sometimes this is promoted as being the path to the end of pain, suppress, deny, overcome. Be a warrior without compassion. Sometimes the path that is promoted is, of course, a path of avoidance. You know, seek pleasure, avoid the unpleasant. Sometimes the path that's recommended is share it. You know, if you're suffering, share it. <laughs> somebody else feels miserable with you you're not so lonely sometimes the path that's recommended is sleep is eat turn to the healing powers of the refrigerator <laughs> sometimes the path that is recommended is gratification numb pain through drowning it in sensory gratification. Sometimes the path that's recommended is go to the past. If we analyze long enough, dissect our histories, trace our family trees, finding the first ancestor who began the path of judgment, then we will emerge purified and cleansed at the end of all of that. Now, some of these things, you know, at moments, you know, might be helpful. Everybody deserves an ice cream cone sometimes. In our most positive way of seeing, our most optimistic way of seeing, some of these alternatives may possibly bring some perspective and balance. 
But I think there are some very clear and some very profound questions we need to ask of ourselves. Do they help us to live in a sacred way? How free are we within those avenues? Do they heal us? Do they heal our world? Do they lead to a clear mind and an open heart? If not, then it is time that we followed some new paths in our lives. Time to learn some new and profound lessons. Time to find the courage and the compassion to explore who we actually are. Time to explore the path of letting go, of forgiveness, of wisdom. It is time to learn the art of freedom. May all beings be free from sorrow. May all beings be free from division. May all beings live in freedom. If we have just two moments quietly together, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.